If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Dalrymple. I got it. <laughs> it's like safe. I've been waiting for a week oh to do goodness. that. It's very well done. Can I just say, from a grateful world, well done. Well done you for saying your name. Excellent. It's not very, everybody very can start. do it. <sighs> anyway, this is Empire. Um, and can I just start off by, again, thanking you for the deluge of um, correspondence and affection and love and enthusiasm and encouragement. Um, you really do make it worthwhile. So many lovely responses to last week's episode uh, with Ramachandra Gua on Gandhi. Um, Willie, we've got some questions that have come in. This one, oh, actually, I've got one question, one tidbit. Do you want the tidbit or the question first? No, oh, it's like a tidbit. You like a tidbit? Oh, I love this tidbit. <laughs> you chose correctly. Um, so, you know, I got rather taken and I have obviously declared my girl crush on Sarala Devi, who was the um, rather spectacular woman who Gandhi fell in love with. And we got an insight into the private passions of the Mahatma. Exactly. So... This. Organizing martial martial lessons for yes. Indian freedom fighters. Yes, and and was the first person to you know insist on being taught science and you know all those wonderful things about Sarala Devi. Well, uh, this is from Neil Mukherjee who got in touch saying, "I'm so so happy you mentioned Sarala Devi because she's a distant relative of mine." And here's a little romantic fact about her: her grandson married Gandhi's granddaughter. No. Yes. The grandchildren got it yes. together. <laughs> I love that. They didn't. I didn't know that. No. I didn't know that either. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, you chose right. I told you, tidbit. Yeah. Always go for the tidbit. Now you've got the question. Okay. So, okay. Now I've got a question. So this is from Robert uh, Corcoran, who says, um, William, you mentioned in the East India Company episode that um, the company didn't hire people over the age of 16. Why was that? I'm not sure. I mean, it definitely was a rule. If you missed, you missed your 16th birthday, it was too late to join the company. So presumably, it was they wanted them young and impressionable. Hmm. Um, your first year, you got sent out to uh, Calcutta to the Writers' Building, where there was a, a Fort William College, uh, and you went through a sort of rapid course in Hindi, Bengali, accountancy, and all the other things you'd need age 17 to administer great tracts of India. <laughs> and, and if they were yeah. successful... I mean, many of them died that first couple of years, and, and Park Street Cemetery is full of 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds who didn't make it through the cholera uh, or the viral fever, whatever it was, of, the, of that first monsoon. But if they did you know, get the antibodies within the first two years, many of them who were successful would retire by 30 and get home and buy themselves a rotten borough and become an MP. And you said that beautifully when, when we did that particular subject but there's a follow-up from Robert who says well you, yes you did say they made their fortune is it because they were given vast salaries or was it through extracurricular activity that they made their vast fortunes like soldiers in the British army at the same time and soldiers in the East India Company army at the same time they were given famously low salaries and so it was only through extracurricular activities mm. that uh, they made these fortunes and these were not necessarily um 
completely dodgy in that uh, what they were allowed to do was 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 called private trading. So they had the right to join up with an Indian partner uh, and uh, and trade in Indian goods. But you know this was contingent on on having an idea of how to do this. And right. certainly, my ancestor Stair Darimple, whose letters I've been through, who's 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 um, letters from his 16-year-old self stuck in Calcutta, not quite sure why he was there in 1755 and 1756, survive until he dies in the Black Hole of Calcutta in 1756, mm. um, is um, he gets into business with uh, what he calls a banyan, which means a trader, and he buys a load of saltpeter and he borrows money to, to, to buy this and he hopes he's going to be able to sell it in enormous profit, but the ship sinks. So when he dies in the Black Hole of Calcutta, he's already managed to lose an Gosh. entire fortune uh, and dies with enormous debts. So, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that these young men, you know, went out with a sort of field gun and and sort of lined people up and, and said hand over your hand over your goods. Um, the idea was that they traded uh, and they used the uh, the name of the company and mm. the prestige of the company and and the authority of the company to presumably beat down their their business partners and rivals and that sort of thing but it was that was how they did it that was the basic thing that they that they would be traders in their own right so in addition to their jobs let's say you know running a district court in Murshidabad or, uh, or or being in charge of the customs in Patna or whatever their official company job was all these guys would be busy doing deals on silk cottons and yeah. and uh, side, you know side orders of samosas as we like to say yeah, absolutely <laughs> exactly um, that yeah so look another one here uh, from Vinay, and then let's crack on with what we're here to talk about. So Vinay uh, says, um, an episode on maybe the non-violent players in Indian independence would be good. He did enjoy the, the Gandhi one, but um, what about the non-violent? I'm thinking mainly, of course, of Bose and Bhagat Singh, says uh, Vinay Iyer. Uh, and I appreciate making this podcast at a very critical juncture in world history. Vinay, thank you. We are doing one um, uh, non, non-violent person quite soon, um, and that is Udham Singh, who uh, is somebody I've written a lot about. So do stay with the podcast because we have got some of those avenues to explore as well. Plus, we've had um, some uh, goading, I'd say, rather than complaints, goading from our Pakistani listeners that if we've had Gandhi, uh, we should have Jinnah. And I think that's think actually a very right. good idea. I think they're absolutely right. I think we should. So let's do that. Uh, particularly as Jinnah, I think everyone, even mm. even even his greatest critics would admit, was massively caricatured mm. in, in the Attenborough Gandhi film, where he sits there cackling like sort of some vampire in the corner mm. saying, I will make India or break it. Uh, or I will break India or make, I can't remember what he, but anyway, so it's, it's all very sort of caricaturish. And he is an interesting character. He is this character who mm. is married to a Parsi, has an open top car, uh, wears spats and co-respondent shoes, uh, and is, is very different figure from the austere and, um, and uh, figure you see on Pakistani banknotes. Exactly. Yeah, the moral of the story is do keep emailing. And I know, I know a lot of you are saying, look, are you going to move on from Asia? Yes, we are. And so we do appreciate your thoughts. And we're, we're, we, William and I have got this virtual map where we're sticking all your suggestions. And we will very shortly, hopefully, announce where we're going next. Uh, we can't announce it now. Because we don't know, but what we do know <laughs> is we're going to complete this season, <laughs> which to, is yeah. <laughs> Go on, Anita. Well, well, what we're here to talk about the Kohinoor diamond. Now, this is um, a thing we've been teasing you about uh, for a, a long time, and it is such a good time to be talking about this diamond. It is the very reason that um, William and I are partners in crime. But we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but it's been in the news a lot after the death of Queen Elizabeth because almost immediately, William, it started trending in India. Um, give us the Kohinoor back, right? Exactly. And uh, this is something that I think, you know, will surprise British listeners who do not necessarily associate the death of a queen with a stone they may or may not have heard of sitting in the Tower of London. And, and in a sense, this again takes us back to the heart of why we're doing this podcast, the massively different perceptions of how empire looks uh, from the colonised half of the world as opposed from the metropole. Mm. And... Um, this the Kohinoor, this tiny stone that now is a not rather so small. Not so tiny. Well, it's, not, it's only the size of a, an egg. I mean, I wouldn't say no to it. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine. That the, well, it's you big know, for a diamond, but it's, you know, it's yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this okay. This stone, this diamond, bears the entire weight of colonial loot on yeah. it, and everything that the colonial uh, world stole from 
the colonized world is symbolized by this this one small diamond. It's a cold, hard reminder of, to Indians, at least, of their humiliation. But it is also a prism through which we see the rise and fall of many different empires, isn't it? Exactly. And so this in this episode and those that follow it. And I think we're going to be doing four episodes. We are on the spoiling Koenor, you with our Koenor knowledge. Yes. Because we love this story. Uh, and it is the story yeah. that brought us together. Yeah. Um, this story tells the very complicated story of this diamond. Uh, and it's not the simple version that many people believe. And well, Anita, do you want to talk about how we got together, or shall we start on how on the myth well, mythology? Shall we sort of start because William um, uh, and I, we we have done book tours on this, and and William loves to start, particularly in conservative audiences, with this beautiful line, which is, "Everything you've ever thought you've known about the Kohenor is wrong. bullshit." <laughs> you say bullshit. You're saying wrong now. I've been very polite. I've seen you make some. You've trained me. You've trained me well. Well, I guess, but I have seen you know, sort of sorry clad three rows shudder with your introduction across continents. True, it's but, true. But why? Why is it all rubbish? What is the rubbish, and and why is it rubbish? So it's interesting in in the Indian press and in on a major series in Indian TV lately, we've seen uh, the entire mythologized version of the Kohinoor, uh, prehistory of the Kohinoor, rolled out time and time again. And I mean, literally, there must have been a hundred articles that have turned up on, on, on Google News in, uh, in, on my feed in the last fortnight, uh, all of which give this mythologized version of the, of the Diamond's history, for which there is not a single shred of evidence. What's the mythologized version? So this is this all goes back to the Kakati. So tell, tell us what, what is being peddled out there. Yeah, so the mythologized version is that uh, the diamond was mined from uh, in, in bottomless antiquity by slaves working in the, the deep mines of Golconda, uh, that it uh, this uh, enormous diamond, the largest in the world, uh, was found, and uh, the Kakatiya dynasty in South India placed it as the eye of an idol in a great temple. The temple was then raided by the wicked Muslims, particularly the uh, generals of Alauddin Khalji, uh, who stole it and took it to Delhi. And then successive uh, murderous dynasties of Afghans and Turks stole it from one another till eventually it reached the hands of the Emperor Babur, um, who then lost it. And on it goes. But the reality actually is that there is not a single historical mention of this stone until one of Nadir Shah's uh, biographers mentions it in about okay. 1740. We're going to come to that. My question to you is why has this um, fake news, hashtag fake news, um, even been released upon the world? And and you did a wonderful thing while we were doing this, is you traced the source of said bullshit. Uh, where did it come from? It all goes back to a document uh, written by a young officer in Delhi. And I have held this document because it still survives in the bowels of the Indian National Archives uh, on what used to be called Rajput and which now is called... Well, it, it's Kartavyapat. Of course you should know this. I Keep can't up, even pronounce <laughs> <up, man. laughs> it. known it for a week. It is, <laughs> it is the road of duty. The Shocked road and appalled that you don't know this, yes. Uh, anyway, uh, yes. it's only been called that for two weeks, so <laughs> I'm allowed not to. <laughs> You're the least bit ashamed. So, what 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 is it that you held in your in your hot little hand? So, in my hot little hand in the archive, I just looked up in the uh, Victorian um, uh, indexes in the National Archives. I simply looked, went to Koinor and got up the the documents. There were about twenty documents listed under this, and the earliest is a document by a man called Theo Metcalf, who's a young officer in Delhi, and he was commissioned by his father's friend, uh, Lord Dalhousie, mm. uh, who had got his hands on the diamond, as we'll hear uh, soon in, in, in one of the episodes to come, uh, in uh, 18... Uh, what year is it? 18... 1849. 1849, mm. on the 29th of March, the diamond enters uh, Lord Dalhousie's uh, 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 possession. Uh, and he commissions this young officer who's in Delhi to get the juice on the diamond because Metcalf is in Delhi. He knows all the princes and princesses who are still there in the Mughal mm. headquarters of the Red Fort in Delhi. And he is commissioned to go up to the Red Fort and also to talk to the oldest jewellers in Chandni Chowk and gather all the gossip. 
And Theo does this. And um, I can read to you the opening lines of his report. And he says, uh, I cannot but regret that the results are so very meager and imperfect. Um, but first, he says, according to the traditions of the eldest jewellers in the city of Delhi, as handed down from family to family, this diamond was extracted from the mine called Kohinoor, the Mountain of Light, four days from Mazuli Patnam in the northwest on the banks of the Godavari during the lifetime uh, of the god Krishna, okay. who's supposed to have lived 5,000 years hence. Right. And then all this other succession of dynasties We're is listed just, out. Just, just, you know, <laughs> you and I may be imperfect as historians, but we do a little better than go down the local shops and have a chat. <laughs> we do. <laughs> and, and, then, and then say that this is history. And that's what Theo Metcalf did. He basically gathered gossip. He gathered gossip from the Jewelers in Delhi and from the Red Fort, and that version has not only appeared uh, on Wikipedia and on every single uh, Indian news uh, mm. uh, outlet, um, mm. but when you and I went to work on this, we found that rather, I mean, disappointingly, but fascinating uh, as a historical thing, it, there's not a mention of it before 1740. So yeah. it may have been the Kakatiya dynasty, it may have passed the Aladdin Kilji, it may have been Barbour's Diamond, there's a whole range of stories associated with it, but nothing can be proved. There's not a shred of genuine primary historical source for any of it. Okay. Well, if you want genuine, primary, real, hashtag real news, stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome back. So we're about to take you on quite the roller coaster ride with the Kohinoor diamond. Actually, there is so much to tell you about this diamond. So many dynasties has it passed through that we've decided that we're going to do a special two for one week. Uh, so we're going to be releasing another episode of Kohinoor on Thursday. So two this week and two next week, good because just the story is so, so good. And we want to tell you everything utter a complete mayhem <laughs> it is for four episodes <laughs> now do you remember how this all came about it was at the Jaipur literature festival and we realized that you and i had both written in a sense two halves of the story or in our previous books that these were things we knew about we knew stories which we got from manuscripts which mm. had never been published which had never seen the light of day before uh, and we realized that this one stone was in a sense a symbol for many Indians. It represents everything that the British have taken from India. The Koei North, now sitting in the Queen Mother's Crown in the Tower of London, for many Indians represents the looting, the conquest, uh, and the and the pain of empire. Yeah, I mean, you're not kidding. I learned my best swears, all my swears <laughs> at the Tower of London. So when I was growing up, it was the place that any visitor from India or Pakistan would say immediately, coming out of Heathrow Airport, take me to the tower. And you would know where the Kohinoor diamond would be because there would be knots of brown faces swearing in the most appalling way and using a word, George, George, thief, 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 thief give it back to us. Um, and what's even more hilarious now is that because of these knots that didn't move, they instituted a, a moving walkway. Now you know where it is because people are moonwalking. <laughs> Backwards. <laughs> Backwards to stay in front Towards. of the diamond for the longest. But you're quite right. The, the last time it was seen out in the wild was at the Queen Mother's funeral. It was on, it's in the crown, the Queen Consort's crown, because... I should say, the, the Kohenor Diamond, we're going to go into this in, in much more depth. If you have heard of it, you will know it as the world's most cursed diamond. 
That has led to not one single male regent wearing it in their crown for fear of this supposed curse, which is it will reduce a man and his kingdom to ashes and only a woman can wear it with impunity. Since we wrote this book, I met someone who actually queued up to pay their respects to the Queen Mother. And he said that the coffin was put in the middle of Westminster Hall next to Parliament, lit from the back by this huge stained glass window. And he finally got to the top of the queue and entered Westminster Hall just as the sun was setting. And on top of the coffin, they had the Queen Mother's crown. And on top of the crown was the Kohinoor diamond. And he described walking into the gloom of Westminster Hall and the light refracting through the Kohinoor. You can see it from 200 yards away, the light beaming out uh, from there. Can I just say, this sounds like a really good pitch for the movie, right? Uh, while you're telling the story, I ought to go, oh, I mean, let's just say that did happen. I like that. I like yeah. that story. We should say it doesn't look today as it looked before, where we're going to start this story. But but just describe, William, what it looks like today. Well, it's, it's a really important point, in fact, that it doesn't look like it used to do, because there are very different tastes for diamonds, just like, you know, people like different sorts of cooking in India and Britain. So weirdly enough, there is an, uh, fashions and styles for, for diamonds. And in medieval Europe, as in India, people like their diamonds completely as they emerged from a mine, with a little, maybe a little bit of, uh, of, of tinkering at, the, at some of the corners and things. But basically, they like them natural mm. as, as they appeared. And, the, and what was important was their size. But the Europeans from about the 16th century started... Uh, getting very excited by elaborate cuts, by what they call brilliant cuts, which, which these facets would bring out the sparkle in a diamond. But it often meant losing quite a lot of the diamond. And you could often lose even 50% of a diamond to get that perfect symmetrical cut. Yeah, I mean, the brilliant cut is if any of you who are lucky enough to have rings, which have diamonds in, it's pretty much that cut. So whether it's a rose cut or a square cut, they cut it for shine. And, well, bling, as we call it in this country. They cut it for bling. This is important because India... Before the discovery of the new world mines in Brazil and so on in the 18th century, India was the source of all the diamonds in the world. They all came from India. And they didn't come, interestingly, from, you know, sort of King Solomon's mines, mm. from, from deep down in the, in, in, in the earth with slaves with pickaxes smashing away at walls and chained together and suddenly discovering some diamond. In actual fact, they were alluvial. They were, they were found in the beds of dead rivers left by long extinct volcanoes from, from millennia ago. And so the image you have to have in your head of Indian diamond mines is more like, I suppose, our image of the Midwest or, or, or the, the gold mm. rush uh, with people sieving for gold. Nuggets. Nuggets. And you'd, you'd take your sieve and you'd go through this alluvial. And maybe if you were incredibly lucky, you'd come across a tiny natural octahedral diamond, which is not uncommon even now mm. uh, in the Godavari Delta. I mean, when you're saying, 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 you know, if you were lucky, I mean, these are teeny tiny things. Right? Tiny, oh, tiny, tiny, tiny things. things which yeah. are often, I mean, again, very different from how we imagine a diamond. When we see a cut diamond today in a ratner's ring or whatever, it's this flat thing and it's shiny. A natural diamond is, is an octahedral crystal. It's long. It's like you know, the shape of your pinky yeah. with a little pointy top. But with the quirks of mineralogy, occasionally you get a vast diamond. You get an enormous thing the size of a quail's egg or even a pigeon's egg. Uh, well, they describe it, don't they? The, the Kohinoor, when it, when it was uncut, when it sort of came into the world in its natural glory, we, we think, um, as, as the size and heft of a hen's egg. An important part of, in a sense, the story when we were trying to cut through the myth of the Kohinoor when we were researching this book and trying to actually find the facts is that it turns out that the Kohinoor is not unique. Mm. Today, people, particularly people from the subcontinent, have been brought up with the story of colonial looting and how this was the symbol of India. Oh, they say it's the biggest. It's the biggest, the biggest, the biggest diamond. Yeah, it, give it, it back. There are. It, it, it's not the biggest today. I think is even as as low in the rankings as as, as the ninetieth biggest diamond. Yeah, I didn't. In the I world. didn't. I didn't check this time, but every time I have checked, yeah. it's slipping down it's the order. Because yeah. there's yeah. The, the African mines today mm. are the ones that produce these enormous gems, and every year a new one is found. Or released into the market because mm -hmm. there's a monopoly. It's, a, it's another story, but there's a fantastic world of shenanigans in modern diamond marketing. But the um, the the Indian gems were not infrequently they were found very very large gems, and these were a major early Indian export. Yeah, and they were used both for decoration and 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 for uh, and for power and, and symbolism of power and, and rulership. But it also 
was actually a useful tool, of course, because just like we use diamond cutting tools today, they did in antiquity. And I've read that um, many uh, Egyptologists believe that the pyramids were cut with early Indian diamonds. Uh, and ditto, you find them being used very early on in early China. Mm. So at the very beginning of Indian history, when, when, India's, uh, when India's merchants are beginning to travel through the Red Sea, some of them are arriving in Egypt, some of them are bringing spices, uh, and the Greeks and the Romans are buying a lot of Indian products, one of the first things that's coming into Egypt and hence across the Mediterranean to Europe are diamonds, which are exotic. They're not, they don't exist in Europe. Uh, and for that va uh, reason, they have a very, very high value. And you can also understand then why it is that the, 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 these, these gems in particular become cemented in the Western uh, psyche as exotic and extraordinary and almost magical because the stories that are coming over with those people who are trading are also of worlds that have no <laughs> resemblance, worlds of heat and spice and magic and all of those things sort of come like a cloak around these these diamonds from the east, which is, you know, a, a place that most people are never going to see. There's been an awful lot of very interesting scholarly work on this lately. And, for example, they found that when they were um, looking at the mummy of Ramesses II, they found Indian peppercorns up mm. his nose as part of the mummification process. Ditto that using the Indian diamonds to cut the... Uh, to, to cut the pyramids. Because it's from the magical land, is it? It's a magical land. Yeah, but also, yeah. it, it, it isn't just that it's it's a magical, mystical thing. There's very hard-headed Indian commerce, as they <laughs> yes, say. That's true. And, Marketing uh, boards. And, and as, as yes. today, it's Gujarati yes. merchants. Right, who, right, uh, right, right. And so we've been in the last few few years, all sorts of stuff has done. I and mean, we could do an episode on this maybe one day. Uh, the, the For example, there's a new site that's been uncovered on the island of Socotra, which is in the Red Sea between Yemen and Somalia. And they found a cave that's basically full of full of first century BC Gujarati graffiti. Oh, that's with, tremendous! With all these sea captains, some of whom are Hindu, some of whom are Buddhist, heading to back and forwards to Egypt. So again, you, you know, again, we often think of India as being this sort of slightly sort of mystical country, yep. up to all sorts of strange stuff in the ocean. But it, as ever, as today, it's it a massive a economic powerhouse. force. It's yeah. powerful. Mm. It's rich, and everyone in the West wants not just the spices and the. Uh, and the cottons, they want the diamonds. They want the so look, the reason we're telling you all of this, and, and we're going to get to the star attraction, the shiny star attraction of the Kohenor in a moment, is just to give you a sense of the world as it was and the Kohenor's place in it. Now, to look for the Kohenor, the most reasonable place, and we thought this when we were researching the book, would be to go to um, India's answer to uh, Samuel Pepys. It's a, a man called Babur. He was a Mughal emperor, 16th century. And he normally, he writes about everything. <laughs> he writes a lot, doesn't he? I mean, the Barber Nama, as it's called, the Book of Barber, is a really detailed thing. And he, he likes to talk about gems, doesn't he? So in 1526, the whole of Indian history changes. In fact, the, his, the whole history of South Asia and Central Asia has changed forever. There's a completely improbable invasion of India by a man who's effectively a refugee. And this man is Babur. He's been kicked out of Uzbekistan by the arrival of the Uzbeks. Babur goes down to Kabul, uh, and he uses this as a springboard to attack India, which he regards as a source of enormous wealth. India is not a country he particularly likes. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be there, but he wants the wealth of India. And in 1526, he attacks the king of Delhi, who's a man called Ibrahim Lodi. And the first thing that his son, Humayun, gives him when he arrives is an enormous diamond. Now, that diamond may or may not be the Kohinoor. The important point is that Babur founds the Mughal Empire. And we're going to be talking a lot about the Mughals in this and, and many mm. other episodes, I think, of this podcast. Because the Mughals are the, uh, the force that turns India into the premier economy of the world. Today, we often think of India as, as, as a poor country or a third world country, particularly people in, in Britain tend to dismiss it in this way. But for most of history, India, along with China, is one of the two major economies of the world. Yeah. And under the Mughals, uh, it becomes the biggest workshop of the world. What Manchester would be in the 19th century, in 18th century, it's Bengal. There are a million looms in Bengal producing incredible amount of, uh, of silk and jewellery. And the Mughals, who are often depicted in Bollywood films as these guys lying around in palaces, dropping mangoes into the mouths of concubines with fluttering white pigeons behind them. Like anything in life, 
that wealth came from somewhere. And a lot of that came from the wealth of the textile trade. And it's the, this massive economic force. And that's why you have, in later periods, you have all, you know, the, first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and finally the British going to India. Not because they it's some sort of Elizabethan, you know, save the children fund charitable exercise. It's because they want the wealth of India. It's incredibly rich. I just say that's your two-sentence summary. That's hilarious. Um, I mean, I would, have, I would have summed it up. They are to India what the Romans were to Britain. You know, just this sort of arrival of, a, of an empire empire building sense uh they wanted to milk a place for every penny so but i like yours too okay so for our subject what's yeah. important is that they have a different idea of what's a beautiful gem previously in indian history everyone had put diamonds at the top of the hierarchy but the moguls like redstones they like rubies and, and spinels which is something we don't really talk about today which are these these redstones from badakhshan and the reason is that it's, they're all over Persian poetry. Hafez, Fadazi. Fadazi writes in the Shah Nami, when the sun gave the world the color of the spinel, dark night set foot on the celestial vault. So suddenly you get a change in, in, in the idea of what's important. And, and the Indians who've been very, very excited about diamonds now find that their rulers are, are obsessing about redstones. So Barbara, it doesn't, I'll rather unhelpfully mention it. Um, but we do know, we know of its appearance in the Mughal dynasty. But it's through a man called Shah Jahan. Now, you might not have heard of him, but you will have heard of his greatest hit. It's his greatest work is the Taj Mahal, which I'm sure any of you who've been to India have tried to beat a path towards. But he also made something else. He made the peacock throne. Now, that it's not a throne as um, we think of it today. Also, it was worth four times what the Taj Mahal was worth. William, I mean, just describe that, that peacock throne for us. So the moguls were very strong on their aesthetics. They loved beautiful things. They loved uh, miniature paintings and the, the whole miniature tradition of the moguls, those beautiful images of, of all these tiny figures on these gorgeous manuscripts. But they obsessed, above all, with gems. And the Emperor Jahangir in the 16th century is roughly a, a um, contemporary of Elizabeth I in England, gets his nobles to give him gems mm. on Nauruz, which is New Year's Day. And you, these guys line up, and if they want promotion in court, they have to give the best and biggest gem. So by the time that Jahangir dies, the Mughal treasury is heaving with loot. enormous gems they've yeah. got enormous i mean there's there's loot itself but mm -hmm. there's also they've they've captured quite a lot of the mines at, uh, in the center of india uh, and now everyone is is buying these things in order to get preferment at court it's, mm. it's the quickest way to get uh, a posh job to become a governor of a province or uh, a major aristocrat and so when jahangir's son shah jahan comes to the throne he finds vaults full of these things mm. that are be, you know, doing no useful job as far as he's concerned. And he comes up with a brilliant idea of turning this, in a sense, stagnant wealth sitting in vaults into something that can actually proclaim the power of the dynasty. So it's, it's like Alibaba's you know, cave and just sort of sweeping it out and saying, right, I'm going to make a piece of furniture. And they make a piece of furniture, <laughs> not just it a it. piece of furniture, yeah. the most valuable piece of yeah. furniture ever made. And so they make this throne that is a domed covered object more like in our eyes a, a sort of ice cream kiosk yeah. than uh, than, I mean, a, than a throne it's as gaudy. we think of it it's gaudy as anything yeah. isn't it's it? not a seat yeah. it, it, it's this it's this domed uh baldachin or, or uh, and they cover every <laughs> centimeter of it <laughs> with the shiny. largest gems yeah. in the world and it isn't just a shiny thing it's it's very cleverly structured so it reflects the throne of solomon uh, as written about in the quran and as well as looking at it and thinking, God, these are the richest kings in the world, mm. there's also a sensation that, that that a Muslim would immediately associate it with, with King Solomon, who's the symbol of justice, who's the symbol of wisdom. So this is an early example in the sense of using art for propaganda. Uh, so Shah Jahan is a master of this, and he turns the jewel vaults of the Mughal treasury into something that's actively a, 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 an act of propaganda now, proclaiming the power of the dynasty. Tell us, tell us, put us out of our misery. Is the Kohinoor <laughs> now going to make its debut in the world? So the Kohinoor, for the first time, we can say with certainty, the Kohinoor is on the peacock throne. 
It's on the top of the peacock throne. Yeah. And the peacock throne is named after the peacock on the top of the peacock throne. In some versions, uh, images, there are two peacocks. In one version, uh, one picture, actually three peacocks on the top. Okay. Uh, but uh, according to the best source we have, the Koh-i-Noor was the head of one of the peacocks. And this is Marvi who tells us this? This so is the historian Marvi, The first right? time we actually get the yeah. name Koh-i-Noor, and we know that we're dealing with the stone, which is now sitting in the, in the Tower of London on the Queen Mother's throne. The first time we could actually say there's no question, it's He there. names it. He names it he the Mountain of Lies. Yeah. There is a diamond yeah. the size of a hen's egg and it is the head of the peacock That's on great. the peacock throne. Finally. And this is when the peacock throne is already gone. It's left Delhi by the stage. It's been captured by the Persians. Wait, 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 wait. you're jumping ahead and there's too much good <laughs> stuff here because at the moment, so there he is, Shah Jahan, happily ever after, sitting in his throne. He'll rule for a million years on the throne of Solomon. And but, yet, and yet, at the and time, yet. in the at the time it's built, the, the what the chroniclers in Mughal India are pointing out are not the diamonds on the top, which is what uh, we are obsessed by. They're pointing out all the red stones, particularly oh. Timur's ruby on there. So we have lots of descriptions of the peacock throne when it's first unveiled as this kind of incredible thing in the palace, and everyone writes about it. And there's many, many court, but they don't point out the diamonds. They no, point out nobody red cares. <laughs> nobody cares. But they really should because you know. Some may say, malevolently, that diamond is looking at the great Mughal Empire and rubbing its little faceted hands together. And almost immediately that uh, he, he builds this thing, things begin to go wrong. He has many sons. Uh, and in almost every generation of the Mughal Empire, there's a big squabble. As the, as the father has a stroke or, or, or nears death, the sons begin to arm themselves. We had one and very lovely son who it seems to be quite popular, Darasuko. Darasuko is, is the son that... Everyone wishes Everyone, he's he's taken the over. The man who should have been king. But like, yes, but like was, the kind of Tory party elections, <laughs> you never get the right one. It's always. <laughs> It's you, you may say wins. that I couldn't possibly comment, but um, the thing is, so Darashiko is the one everybody wants, but then there's another boy, the sort of the the, the malevolent boy. The malevolent one is is the man who becomes yeah. the next emperor and and takes the name Aurangzeb, yeah. Alamgir Aurangzeb, and he is. There's, there's wonderful accounts of, of the civil war leading up to it by lots of European commentators. Yeah. Because um, at this stage, lots of Europeans are going there because it's so rich. That you have all these, in a sense, sort of poor Europeans going to work there rather than having, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, Bangladeshi immigrants coming to work the mills in, in Bradford. You have, in the 16th century and 17th century, European, poor Europeans going to try and get jobs in Mughal, uh, Mughal right. India. But just with Aurangzeb, I mean, the reason he's he's got a he's got a bad reputation among some parts of India. Others say he's one of the greatest Mughal emperor, emperors who's, who, who ever lived. But certainly those who criticise him, he was mean. He, you know, possibly poisoned his brother and imprisoned his poor father, his poor grieving father in a, in a cell. Well, one of the reasons why it's so interesting doing a podcast at this time in mm. history that's dealing with Indian history is that Indian history, like some other parts of the world, like, for example, the history of, uh, of Israel and Palestine, where you have two different contested views of history which are completely at odds with each other. Uh, and almost don't meet each other at any point. This is now happening in India, in, in India, and and between India and Pakistan. So, in in, in traditionally in Pakistan, Aurangzeb has been looked at as a great conqueror, uh, as a great martial leader, uh, and increasingly in India, uh, and particularly now under the the new BJP Modi Hindu nationalist world of of, of modern India. Aurangzeb is the ultimate villain. Yeah. He, he is the kind of Count Dracula, the Lord Voldemort, the pit, take your evil. So put, uh, I mean, put the yeah. Darth, Darth Aurangzeb to one side. <laughs> Darth but, Aurangzeb. <laughs> but the reality of Aurangzeb, though, did he or did he not poison his brother and imprison his dad in a, in a cell, leaving him to rot away? Yeah, there's several brothers now competing. It is literally like the Tory party leadership. You know, you have too many contenders. They're all suddenly popping up. And... Uh, as, again, with the Tory party leadership, they begin to ally and make alliances, and then one or another stabs the other in the back. So mm. the first one that joins uh, Aurangzeb is Murad, uh, but he's got uh, Aurangzeb gets him drunk, puts him in fetters, and then feeds him poppy water, so he, gets, so he loses his mind and goes mad. Uh, he then de uh, defeats Darashuko uh, in battle. Darashuko is paraded through Delhi on the back of a dirty donkey and then mm. murdered. And he then locks his father, Shah Jahan, uh, in the apartments of the royal palace in Agra, effectively under very fancy house arrest. And what we don't know is what happens to the diamond collection. Uh, and this is one of the great mysteries, because when there's a European jeweler who comes at this time called Tavernier, who's trying to gather 
diamonds for the the Sun King. For mm. this is now the period of, of Louis the Fourteenth and Versailles and all that whole uh, wonderful world of excess and and, and and far too much wealth. And Tavernier begins this process of of these diamonds coming from Oglindia and going to Europe. And he is finally, after many applications, is shown Aurangzeb's jewel collection mm. and he draws them. So we get the first images of these things. And the Koh-i-Noor is not there. He talks mm. about the Great Mogul Diamond, but it's a different shape. And the reason is, I think certainly, uh, if you put all the pieces together, is that the reason he didn't see it was it wasn't in the jewel collection. It was on the roof of the peacock throne still. Mm. And while he sees uh, Aurangzeb in this from a distance, because... Uh, there's a strict hierarchy in court, and the and the, you know the the posh nobles are at the front, then the lesser nobles in the middle, and finally visitors like Tavernier are right at the back of the public mm. audience. He can't actually see these enormous diamonds flashing on the roof of the Koh-i-Noor. So again, we have a detailed description of the Mughal treasury, and bizarrely, there's no mention even now of the Koh-i-Noor. So where is the Koh-i-Noor diamond? Right, where does it pop its shiny little head up next? So after the death of Aurangzeb. The Mughal Empire, which for 150 years has ruled all of India, is the richest economy in the world, covers not just India, but modern Pakistan, Bangladesh, all of Afghanistan, a slither of Iran. This huge empire with a million men in its army, this unassailable sort of fact in the, in the center of Asia, crumbles incredibly quickly. The Marathas ride out of the hills above Bombay. They capture Surat, the uh, uh, the great Mughal port. And the Marathas, for those, again, just they're, they're, they're largely based on what is now modern-day Maharashtra, but a really martial race, uh, a, a, a warrior caste, if you like. Then there are the Sikhs in the Punjab, um, who and, and they're, they're threatening Delhi from the north, and then the, the Jats near Agra. So you've got three different com competitors, and any one of them might seize Delhi and seize the, uh, the, the Kuinor, but it's none of them in the end that no. get to get this sort of ripe mango about to fall off the tree. It's a complete outsider. It is a man who comes from nowhere, from Persia, and his name is Nadir Shah. So Nadir Shah is the son of a shepherd or a furrier um, from a very humble background. He joins the Persian army and he rises to the top and he then does what we today would call a military coup. He overthrows the Safavid Empire and he takes charge. Mm. And he is a military genius. He invents something or he uses something called the swivel gun, which is like the kind of light tank of its time. It's a huge gun, a jazale, which can be put onto a horse with a tripod. And with that, he expands the power of Persia. But his enemies, are uh, his real enemies, are the Russians and the Turks. And he needs money to fight them. So he says, I'm going to pluck some golden feathers from the mogul peacock's tail. Well, now the mogul peacock's tail is is being presided over by a man who is very unlike Aurangzeb. So or the time has now passed since Aurangzeb, the meanie, stroke genius, whichever way you want to take this, um, has been on the throne. It's now a man called um, Rangila, Mohammed Shah Rangila, who is one of my favourite characters <laughs> in history because he's entirely an aesthete. He's slightly useless as He's a ruler. Useless. <laughs> he likes a party. He loves a party. Uh, he likes cross-dressing. He does. He likes... He wears pearly shoes. Uh, he wears pearly shoes. women's outfits. Yes. And, and, and actually doesn't care. I mean, you know, there, there are... Whenever we've done this talk on the road, there is one slide I beg you not to show. <laughs> and you show Perhaps you describe it, religious <laughs> fervour. <laughs> just look at all it's the aunties. in trouble the aunties. in every country. I mean, I look at all the aunties and swooning in the audience. But it is basically ancient porn. <laughs> Muhammad Shah with his girlfriend. Exactly. With his girlfriend yeah. doing things that should not be done in public. But there he is doing it. Anyway, in, so in this, our slideshow. Yeah. It, it, it is all about pleasure with, with Rangila. And he, culturally, a hugely important figure. He, you know, the sitar, which now is in every Indian restaurant, and is almost this, you know, the inevitable soundtrack of anything about India. The sitar is introduced to, to court by Music, Rangila. By Rangila. Yeah. The tabla, again, you, you've got one in this I've room. I've got one here, yeah. Um, uh, is, 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 you know, the, the, the basic Indian drum today is introduced to, to court music by Rangila. So culturally, he's this hugely important figure. Mm. Militarily, he's a complete catastrophe. He's, he, he's a strategic doofus. <laughs> Nadir Shah, who's this sort of completely ruthless, single-minded, militaristic character with this small, tight army that can't be defeated. He's also humorous. I and mean, we should describe, we've done Rangila, who's this sort of pretty boy of the Mughal <laughs> dynasty. 
But then on the other hand, you've got Nader Shah, who is austere. He's austerity made flesh. He wears black. <laughs> he has his sort of sharp, pointy beard and facial <laughs> furniture. He, he never knowingly smiles in any picture <laughs> no, I've ever picture, seen. Exactly. He's a very grim <laughs> let, guy. let alone the kind of Rangila portraits. I mean, this, this man is, yeah. is a serious man. So he goes out of Persia. And he takes Afghanistan. He attacks Kabul, and the major centre, not not the you know a kind of poor, war torn country at this point, but the summer capital of the, of the Mughal Empire. It's a, it's a hugely uh, rich, incredibly mm. sophisticated city. He captures it without resistance. He comes down the Khyber Pass. He attacks Peshawar. He captures that without resistance, and he captures Lahore. And at that point, finally, Muhammad Shah Aguila gets his act together, summons the, uh, the nobles of his empire. And three armies converge at a place called Karnal. So that there are 1.5 million men waiting in this camp. Trouble is that... Sorry, just wait, wait. You did just say 1.5 million people on Rangila's side. But we seem to get the impression that there are other more jugglers than soldiers <laughs> in this camp. <laughs> the, the whole of, you know, if you know yeah. Delhi, the whole of Khan Market has turned up. All the ladies in their Dior sunglasses or their 18th century equivalent uh, are there. This and is the best. I mean, this is, this is why I love him. He's such an idiot. But he's bring, he brings musicians. He brings many chefs many different <laughs> cuisines are on offer on the front line there are jugglers there's there's entertainment uh there are women <laughs> it's like, what is he doing it's and like meanwhile the, the persians Festival. are approaching at speed exactly. right a small army but tooled up <laughs> and oh, dear. Uh, there is just one confrontation and and, and it's the extraordinary it's, it's i mean if if ever this gets made into a film it'd be a wonderful moment because yeah. the, the the cream of mogul chivalry wearing heavy horse armor shining uh shining helmets gorgeous Game plumes of Thrones, and pennants fine finally yeah. stretch out over five miles yeah. uh, on the plains of canal and they begin to charge the persians deliberately retreat and withdraw pretending to be worried by this yeah and there's all these light cavalry at the front. At the last minute, just when the charge is, it, it has, has reached a point where it can't stop, the light Persian cavalry part like a curtain, left and right. And there are these swivel guns, the, these, these huge jazails facing them. Five minutes later, it's all over. Yeah. The cream of the Mughal army is dead on the ground. And that evening, Nadia Shah, knowing his enemy, sends an invitation to Rangila to come to dinner. <laughs> Just, oh, and what does this idiot do? Rangila. Hello. <laughs> come I'm, to dinner. I'm your slaughterer. <laughs> Would you like to come home for a bite, a light supper? <laughs> and what does Rangila the idiot do? He rubs his hands and says, absolutely. And he comes over with his jugglers, with his musicians. And they have this lovely dinner together. Mm. But at the end of it... One can imagine Nadia Shah snapping his fingers or whatever, and he, and, and and all the, the the handful of bodyguards that Muhammad Shah has brought are arrested, and Muhammad Shah Rangila is told that he's now the guest of Nadia okay. Shah and he can't go back. So the next day, <laughs> they send for more concubines to keep him busy, and the day <laughs> after that, they ride into Delhi together with with Nadia Shah and Muhammad Shah on the same elephant. Yeah, and everything, of course quickly goes wrong. The people of Delhi rise up against the Persians who are busy sort of molesting girls in the bazaar and so on. Initially, by, because of the surprise, the people of Delhi massacre quite a lot of the Persian army. But then Nadir Shah comes out of the Red Fort with the cavalry, with all the, with the heavy, heavy guns. And there is a massacre. It just runs with blood. The center so the, of Delhi the descriptions, is destroyed. And there are lots yeah. of descriptions of this. It is just it's a major event because this is carnage. the largest city in the world. There's a million yeah. people in Delhi. Yeah. It is wholesale slaughter. They just go and around killing everybody. And, and there's, I mean, we have wonderful reports from ambassadors saying, you know, mm. this is the end. The, the Mughal Empire, which has run this part of the world for so long, is now over. Six weeks later, Nadir Shah leaves Delhi. With him, he takes 10,000 wagons of jewels and gold. The six weeks between the massacre and the, and the departure are spent melting down the gold into ingots so, so it can be transported, it. so they can carry mm. it. And 8,000 wagons leave Delhi on the on the train of and of course what happens is that the whole of every, you know, every uh, peasant farmer in North India then sort of raids the camp each night and and you know they begin to hemorrhage jewels and and and, and mm. gold even before they've left India, but a lot of it makes it back to Afghanistan. Nadir Shah rules from Herat, which is now but just on the border between Iran and Afghanistan, and he puts this enormous loot in 
uh, a castle called Kalat. And at the center of it, and he has a little exhibition, he shows it to his troops and his men and anyone else who, who wants to come and see it. He actually puts on an exhibition of all the loot he's taken from India. And at the center of it are the Mughal thrones, not just the peacock throne, but three other thrones as well. And sitting there, and this is the point when Muhammad Marvi, the biographer of Nadir Shah, mm -hmm. the court chronicler, says on the top of the peacock throne, is there the Cohen or is the mountain the of light. Now, um, there is, I mean, that's that's the, the history of it, but the fantasy of it, again, I'm, I'm just <laughs> to tell you. It's <laughs> a very good story. <laughs> such yes. a good story. So the other story that has been really predominant uh, about the Cohen or is that Rangila, when Rangila idiotically accepts this invitation from his would-be slaughterer, <laughs> says um, he hides the Kohenor in his turban because, you know, it's the safest place. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> who but would look could, at his turban? I mean, yeah. who'd look? So he goes to visit um, Nader Shah and, and, and Nader Shah has been told by a concubine in common that, you know, psst, it's up there, it's up in his hat. <laughs> so when they meet... Uh, Nader Shah, according to this apocryphal story that has really dominated for centuries, that Nader Shah insists on doing the turban swap, which is a which is a real thing. It's a real thing in India. It's when you know, in marriages as well. You know, you have the two sides come together, and it's an act of respect. Here, you take mine, I'll take yours. <laughs> and apparently, <laughs> according to the story, which is not true, but it is the story that's prevailed, he says, "Rangila, welcome. Won't you take my turban?" And Rangila goes, "Oh." crap <laughs> no <laughs> oh oh and that's how the diamond passes but anyway okay so do you think this is a good place to pause it so we now have oh crap the diamond <laughs> being the perfect yeah, break. the most edifying <laughs> no we now have the diamond is now with Nader Shah. it is in persian hands but it's in afghanistan and uh, join us again to find out what happens. Does it do him any good, William? Just a sneak peek. Does it do it him any? It possibly does It possibly, <laughs> very definitely does not. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. If you like what you've heard, there's more of that to come. Lots more. There will be further blood, gore and, and chaos and anarchy coming soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.